Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Well, I guess it's time to start the show. Uh, Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. Across the table from me, my good friend Matthew Stockton with a capital S. Hello, everybody. How are you today, Matthew? I am good. You are good? Despite the knee. Despite your knee. What happened to your knee? I'm not sure. I have to get it checked out. It's swollen up. Your knee is swollen up. I think it's from sitting cross-legged at my desk all day when I work. Okay, because it wasn't from... Uh, exerting yourself in some some form of exercise, then or no, me exercise. Well, I, thought well, I you, do. You I do walk and you yoga. Yeah, yoga. Yeah, no, it's from sitting down too much. Sitting down. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your two, grab yourself a double-double and an Anaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Live from New York, it's dark poutine. No, it's Surrey. <laughs> it's not live. <laughs> live from, well, no, recorded from Surrey. <laughs> it's dark poutine. There you go. On the afternoon of January 27, 1993, the day before her 20th birthday, Sean Simmons, a student who was working her way through school, was found dead in her basement suite in the Guilford neighborhood of Surrey, British Columbia. She'd been shot and bludgeoned. Neighbors had heard screams coming from her suite and saw a man running away. Only days later, David Schlender was arrested already on bail for the attempted murder of one of his cocaine dealers the year before schlender told police he'd been hired by another man brian west to commit the murder in exchange for wiping an outstanding drug debt the investigation led to another man joseph charlambas the simmons family doctor who had hired west to murder sean 18 months before her murder sean and her older sister katie had filed grievances with the bc college of physicians and surgeons alleging sexual assault by Cheryl Ambus. Rather than face censure by the college and risk losing his substantial income, Cheryl Ambus had sought to silence the girls. As the truth came out about the doctor, his carefully constructed facade of the community-minded healer came tumbling down, revealing an ugly pattern of violence and predatory behavior toward young women and girls. You are listening to Dark Poutine Episode 212, Breaking the Oath, The Murder of Sean Simmons.
This case was recommended on our case suggestions thread in our Facebook group, The Yumber Yard, by listener Sheena Strohacker-Reed. This is a crazy story, and the actions taken by the former Surrey doctor, Joe Charolambas, and the other men involved, David Schlender and Brian West, that led to the death of Sean Simmons, shocked many of the doctor's patients, colleagues, and students at his Burnaby Martial Arts School. Sean Simmons' parents, Chris and Susan, were both born and grew up in Gloucestershire, England. The couple married in November of 1966 and emigrated to British Columbia in 1968 with just $1,500 Canadian, three suitcases, and the dream of a better life in Canada. Chris eventually landed a job in Burnaby at the Weiser Law Company where he worked as a millwright, actively competing in judo in his spare time. He actually competed for the province in the Nationals. The Simmons bought their first home off King George Highway here in Surrey in the neighborhood known as Peterson Hill in 1971. The same year, in June, Katie, Sean's elder sister, was born in New Westminster. Mike, did you know that New Westminster was actually planned to be the capital of the province? It was the capital of the province yeah. for a time. Yeah, yeah. but because they were worried about invasion from America, so they moved it to the island. Mm -hmm. So it's named after New Westminster in London. Yes, and Westminster Palace, yes, is the Parliament, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So it, you know, we Justin and I moved here. We're he's British. I'm both, mm -hmm. and it surprises me how many Brits still move here. Yeah, as immigrants, it's 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 just really attractive. Like it's just so far away from the UK, you know. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, New Westminster has a different feel to it than uh, a lot of the other cities in the lower mainland. I don't know what it is. It does feel like it has a little more history somehow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah probably because it does. And you wanted to talk about they came from... Oh, Gloucestershire. They came from a really beautiful place in the UK. Okay. Have you heard of the Cotswolds? No, I don't know what the Cotswolds sort are. Sort of like rolling hills in part of the UK. It's really beautiful. Okay. The hills sort of rise up from the meadows around the upper Thames. Okay, the Thames. The Thames and the Cheltenham festivals there. So the horse races, I don't know if you know any of this. Yeah, so it's a gorgeous place they come from. Cool. Some of Chris's siblings soon followed them to Canada, as did Susan's mother, Kate Davis, and Susan's two sisters, Carol and Sean. In late 1972, according to John Griffith's book, Fatal Prescription, the Simmons jokingly promised Sean Davis that if the baby they were expecting were born on her birthday and a girl, they'd name the baby after her. Sure enough, two weeks overdue, on Sean Davis's birthday, January 28, 1973, a second daughter was born to Chris and Sue Simmons. Staying true to their word, they named her Sean. They used the Welsh spelling of the name, S-I-A-N, just like other members of the family who'd borne the same moniker. Sean means in Welsh, God is great. Sadly, only two months later, Sean Davis... Sean Simmons' aunt and namesake, was killed in a car crash on the highway in Langley. When Sean was a year old, Chris Simmons took a job at Safeway and would work there for the rest of his career. Sean's mom, Sue, worked too at a BC government liquor store, spending her time away from work with the girls and Chris. When Sean was five, they moved to a larger home in the Willoughby Hill area of Langley. They were even able to buy a summer home on Salt Spring Island soon after that. The Simmons family was thriving and the girls were growing up. They did all the typically middle-class Canadian things from going hunting with dad, in specially knit hats made by mom Sue, 
to going to brownies, being involved in team sports like basketball and volleyball, and skiing on the fabulous ski hills local to the lower mainland of British Columbia. Yeah, I've, ne- I've never actually stopped to think what a great place BC would have been to grow up in. Especially the lower mainland, yeah. Yeah, there's so much to do. Like, I re- read this and you just said it, and um, just I stopped and thought, like, yeah, being like a young kid or a teenager with, you know, the water, the mountains, there's so mm-hmm. much to do. Yeah, there's a lot to do, and that was kind of one of the things where I grew up, you kind of had to make what you wanted to do. Yeah. You had to either that or travel to it. Yeah. It was a school trip to go to the ski hill, Martok, mm-hmm. or Wentworth, uh, in Nova Scotia, and they were more of like the bunny hill on right. any of the ski hills here. <laughs> Kate later recalled to author John Griffith that Sean was picked on from time to time growing up. She'd required vision correction due to a lazy eye and had to wear an eye patch for a time, and she wore glasses. She was a bit chubby when she was younger as well, which also led to some bullying at the hands of her classmates. Katie had to step in a few times to defend her little sister. However, when Sean hit high school, all that changed. Over the summer, she'd sprouted up and the glasses were gone. She'd become a blue-eyed, blonde-haired beauty, and the jeering she'd received from some of her classmates turned to envy. Sean was a strong student academically, with an equally strong sense of responsibility and a desire for independence. As soon as she could, she went to work at a Safeway store in Coquitlam, and later transferred to a store in Langley to be closer to home. She did have her eye on a career other than retail, and set her sights on Kwantlen College's environmental health program. Safeway paid okay, but tips from a serving job would pay better. And Sean took a waitressing job at Boondocks Seafood Broiler in Langley to help put herself through school. One day in early fall of 1991, Sean and Katie got to chatting about their family doctor, Dr. Joseph Sherilambus. Both of them thought he was a bit of a creep. It isn't clear why the topic had not come up before, as both girls had, over the years, had strange interactions with their doctor, endured odd comments, weird offers of special home visits when their parents were out of town, and unwelcome, unsolicited physical contact from their 41-year-old family physician. From John Griffith's book, Fatal Prescription, quote, Just after New Year's, Katie said to Sean, illustrating her point, I told him that I had quit smoking and he put his arms around me and gave me a big wet kiss. It was gross. Really? Sean concurred. He did that to me too. I never realized it when we were younger, but now I can see he's always been way too friendly. End quote. The girls decided to talk to their dad, Chris, who was livid. Chris insisted his daughters file a complaint against Dr. Cheryl Ambus with the British Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, which they did. But rather than obtaining justice, the Simmons family would have to deal with the wrath of a narcissist who'd do anything to keep what he had. In Cyprus on April 5, 1952, Petru, a seamstress, Petru, a seamstress and Eliodora Sherilambas, a watchmaker, both of Greek heritage, welcomed their second child, Josephakis. After their third child, when Josephakis was eight, the family decided to move to Canada, to escape the rising tensions in Cyprus. They settled in Burnaby, B.C., a suburb that abuts Vancouver. Young Cheryl Lambus shortened his name to Joseph to anglicize it, hoping to fit in amongst his peers. 
I didn't realize the problems were so stark in the 50s in Cyprus. The Turkish and the Greeks yeah. in Cyprus had been at each other for yeah. eons, for centuries. Yeah, because well, it was... I shouldn't say for centuries. It was set in 1974 when there was a coup d'etat and then Turkey right. invaded. Right. And um, now there's that wall, of course. Mm -hmm. It's the only wall left in Europe that separates... Yeah, a city like this. So it goes. It, it's 180 kilometers from one end of the island to the other. That's right. And uh, a lot of people from our generation who were in the Canadian military were in Cyprus as peacekeepers at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know guys who have been to to Cyprus and said that it was a really tense place. I've been to Cyprus 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And I don't understand. It's kind of like Iraq. <laughs> yeah, like there a, lot, a lot of people fighting over an island without much foliage. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's strange. Things weren't great in the Sherylambus home. Eliodorus drank heavily, gambled to excess, and was known to have numerous affairs outside his marriage. The family patriarch ruled the family with an iron hand and took out his frustrations on his wife and children. Neighbors later reported having heard loud arguments coming from the home on Francis Street. Although Joseph did not receive as much abuse as the others, he bore a secret resentment of his father and wanted to have a professional career looking down on his father's vocation. He was determined to do more with his life than his father had and set his sights on becoming a doctor. Joseph's mother and sister treated him as though he were a prince, a golden boy of sorts, and seemed willing to bend over backwards for him, which fed right into his high opinion of himself. Joseph was a good student and worked hard, driven by the egocentric idea to do better than his family had. Biology, in his opinion, was not on his side, which frustrated the youngster as a teen. He was small, slim, and soft-spoken. To compensate, Joseph took up karate, becoming obsessed with the martial art as it made him feel powerful. He became so skilled in martial arts, eventually obtaining a black belt, that he was able to once and for all stand up to his drunken father and physically threw Eliodorus out of the house. That's an interesting stage in a boy's life mm -hmm. when you can overtake your father. Right. Especially like... I don't know if I can. My dad is quite a fit guy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but, you know... Because I, I never had corporal punishment. My father was never physically abusive to me. But I, but I still remember the time when I realized, you know, because even in the 70s, there's always like, I'll give you a backhand or threats like that all the sure. time, right? It's different now, I think. But I can remember sort of getting at that height and that age where I realized I could take my father. Right? Yeah, if I wanted to, yeah. I could push him down. Yeah, and for, for <laughs> yeah. a parent who relies on corporal punishment, yeah, like that's kind of not a good situation to be in, right? Well, it sounds like it kind of backfired on yeah. Eliodorus here, yeah. but I mean, you know. Joseph wasn't exactly... He's a dick. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about this guy. <laughs> Joseph's problems with women started early. He never saw them as individuals or even human, but as something to use and possess. According to a classmate in John Griffith's Fatal Prescription, Joseph had a thing for blonde-haired girls. He chased after and got the prettiest girl in his high school, Alpha Secondary, which again fed his growing ego. The same classmate said that Joseph did not handle rejection well. When one girl spurned him, he went so far as to threaten her family. 
Wow, talk about early signs of having a massive problem. Well, yeah, he's so narcissistic. You can't handle a minor rejection. In high school or whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah, threatening. Well, I, I couldn't handle rejection in high school, so I just didn't bother asking people out. <laughs> I was never rejected. Well, I didn't give myself a chance to be. <laughs> no, I was a couple of times. Yeah. Sure. But, uh, yeah, one, one girl said I was too short. Oh, see, <laughs> like, the, the, well, tr the trick is you don't try unless you know you're going to get in there. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and what does get in there mean, Matthew? In, oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Into yeah, a relationship sure. or her, okay. her, his heart or having a chance. After high school, Joseph entered UBC, eventually earning a coveted spot in the prestigious medical school there. But just like his dad before him, he started gambling and womanizing, often with sex workers, but avoided drugs and booze at that point. He was known, however, to drink gallons of Coca-Cola weekly, becoming overly caffeinated and even more edgy. To work out his agitation, thanks to his growing proficiency in martial arts, Joseph was able to open his own karate school. As his opinion of himself grew, so did his problems with women. In late 1977, a girl he'd been pursuing rejected him. Joseph, unable to walk away from such an affront, punched the young woman in the face, injuring her badly. Fearing further violence, the woman went to police who charged Joseph with assault. Cheryl Ambus received a year's probation for that crime. This guy is a total piece of work. Yeah. What kind of person does something like that? Somebody who's sick in the head. These guys mm -hmm. that treat women like this. Yep. Or people. They're just little men, fear-based little men. They do this weird thing where they think they're being strong. Yeah. But it's just pure weakness. Mm-hmm. Right? In early 1979, police were called after gunshots were reported at Joseph's apartment. Joseph allegedly refused to pay a sex worker for her services. Two men burst in wanting payment and attempted to steal his TV. Joseph grabbed a nearby 22 caliber rifle from his bedroom and fired what he later called a warning shot at the men, hitting one of them in the hand. Even though still on probation at the time, nothing came of the incident, which led to unheeded calls for his expulsion from the medical school. In the summer of the same year, police were in contact with Joseph again after another incident involving yet another sex worker. The woman claimed Joseph had become violent when she was performing oral sex with him in his car, screaming that she was not doing it right. He had allegedly pulled her hair and punched her repeatedly in the head. She fled, noting his license number and reported it to the cops. Police did nothing about the incident, siding with the young medical student. We've seen this a lot, and it, we shouldn't just be pointing at the Vancouver Police Department here. We've seen this a lot throughout history where somebody who is in a position of sex work mm. versus somebody who is yeah. going to university and maybe in a different station societally yeah. gets favored. Yeah. You know, and it's just systemically, that's what seems to have happened for mm. years and years and years. Somebody is a lesser human because they yeah. are yeah. a sex worker. Yeah, I think you're right. We've seen it a lot of times, going back hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, thousands probably. Yeah. I mean, even some of the episodes that we've done, you know, 
from the 1800s we yeah. saw it then and then we're here we are in the 2000s and we're seeing it then or the 90s we're seeing it then yeah well yeah a lot of times when something like this specific thing happens where somebody is with a sex worker and it doesn't work out and and she becomes a victim of violence yeah. it's because that person who perpetrates the violence their body wasn't working the way they would hope so they blame the other person yeah you know that and i've i've read that a lot yeah in my research a lot from fatal prescription by john griffiths quote cheryl lambus graduated from university of british columbia in 1981 subsequently interning at royal columbian hospital in new westminster where he bragged that he slept with a different nurse every night of the week after his name was entered in the medical register on july 7 1982 he was ready to prove something he'd always suspected and to capitalize on at least one of the reasons he'd gone into medicine. Quote, everyone wants to screw a doctor, Cheryl Lambus said. End quote. In some medical schools, though not all, as many believe, graduating medical doctors recite an oath. The first version of the oath, called the Hippocratic Oath, was written in Greek in the year 275 and has been modified throughout the years, becoming the adaptation that many are familiar with. A portion of the problematically gendered Hippocratic Oath translated to English in 1923 reads, quote, Into whatsoever houses I enter, I will enter to help the sick. I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, especially from abusing the bodies of man or woman, bond or free, end quote. The last portion of this sentence is often shortened to, first, do no harm. It's not clear whether Joseph Cheryl Lambus recited the oath on his graduation from UBC's medical school in 1982. As far as I could determine, as part of the graduation in UBC in what is more broadly called a hooding ceremony, graduating doctors do recite the symbolic Hippocratic Oath. And again, whether Cheryl Lambus said it or not, it was an oath that he would not uphold. The money was starting to roll in. Cheryl Lambus soon bought himself a house in Coquitlam where he set up a family practice as a general practitioner. He worked hard and played harder. He gambled heavily, betting on horses at the Hastings racetrack, played poker late into the night, and spent lavishly on lottery tickets. He continued teaching karate at his growing dojo as well, sometimes involving his students in late-night booze and drug-fueled parties. Joseph seemed to have forgotten his disgust of his father's affinity for booze. In 1984, he opened his family practice at 9808 King George Highway. Joseph's live-in girlfriend left him after he struck her. That didn't matter to Joseph, though. He was said to have commented that he did not like having to date women close to his own age. According to John Griffiths, when one of his girlfriends celebrated her 30th birthday, Joseph said, quote, I could trade you in for two 15-year-olds, end quote. What a scumbag. Yeah. That's disgusting. <sighs> Good for her for getting out of that situation pretty quickly. Can you imagine saying that to your partner? No. No. <laughs> Many of the patients in his practice liked Joseph, including the Simmons family, who began seeing him as their family physician early on in his career. But not all of the young women under his care had good experiences. One later reported numerous inappropriate actions undertaken by Cheryl Lambus over a number of months, starting in 1984. 
The woman alleged that assaults involving asking her to remove her clothing when unnecessary, fondling her genitals, sexual comments, and intimidation were a regular part of her doctor visits. From the book Doctors Who Kill by Carol Ann Davis, quote, Around the same time, one of his childhood friends got back in touch and he beat and attempted to rape her. The traumatized woman called police, but Joseph managed to persuade them that she'd suffered a psychotic episode. End quote. Although there were other complaints, no one was willing to confront the doctor legally, fearing they would not be believed and that he would somehow get back at them, having often made not-so-veiled threats. Also that year, Cheryl Ambus became obsessed with a 15-year-old patient named Shelley Joel. Cheryl Ambus began grooming Shelley right away. She was tall and blonde, just his type. Shelley had come to Joseph as her doctor after a sexual assault. He soon asked Shelley to see him outside the office to go on a date with him. She agreed. When Shelley's parents found out that their daughter had been seeing the doctor romantically and was having sex with him, they were mortified. He was twice her age. When Shelley turned 16, she moved in with Cheryl Lambus. Okay. So it's already bad. Right. Doctor, patient, young. Yes. Right? Yeah. But she went to him for treatment after sexual assault. And right. he takes advantage of that. That's just even more reprehensible in my mind. It is. Through my research and what I've seen and... All the cases that I've studied, predators like we are presuming this man is or was or however you want to word it, mm. will tend to gravitate toward people they see who have already been victimized. So people in need in a way. Not necessarily because they see them as an easy target because somebody else was able to get there first. Somebody oh, else was able to... Oh, see, I, I was thinking because it's somebody in need of support or help. To there be, is that. And, and then they just spin that and, mm -hmm. and t take the power structure and start abusing them. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, that's, that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. But the motive behind it, the, the reasoning behind it is because they've already... Somebody else could, already did it, so this person is an easy target sort of thing. Exactly. 100%. Horrible. From Doctors Who Kill by Carol Ann Davis, quote, Shelley's mother and stepfather protested only to find that someone had set fire to their car. They continued to beg their daughter to leave the controlling doctor, whereupon someone poured acid over their other vehicle. By now, Joseph was beating Shelley, and it was obvious that she was miserable and afraid. He also told her that he would kill her mother if the other woman continued to intervene. Determined to free her impressionable daughter from the doctor's clutches, Shelley's mother Jacqueline filed a complaint, but Joseph persuaded Shelley to marry him, knowing that the medical college would look ridiculous if they barred him from medical practice for sleeping with the young woman who'd become his wife. Shortly after the wedding, the teenager became pregnant and nine months later gave birth to a baby girl. End quote. When the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons got around to addressing the complaint, it was too late. Cheryl Lambus was slapped with a six-month suspension and a substantial fine. His excessive gambling was beginning to catch up with him, and in 1989, he was hemorrhaging money so badly, he had to remortgage his home. After his young wife, now 19, gave birth to his second child, Joseph was losing interest in her. She was getting too old, after all. He continued hitting and threatening Shelley. 
She was terrified of him, but he convinced her that she was the problem and that she needed him. He continued exploiting sex workers outside his marriage and turned his creepy attentions from his wife to other, younger female patients. It was at this point he reportedly fondled, kissed, and inappropriately contacted the Simmons sisters. After hearing about the complaint they'd lodged against him in 1991 with the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons, he knew he was in big trouble. He'd been suspended and fined once already. He knew that with this newest complaint, he faced revocation of his license to practice and the possible loss of his $450,000 annual income. Joseph told his wife Shelley, pregnant a third time, not to worry. He would shut the Simmons girls up and make this all go away. And we'll take a break right here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back. Matthew, what are your thoughts on Mr. Joseph Sharalambas? And I refuse to call him doctor because... Uh, there's no redeeming features about this guy whatsoever. Yeah. Um, he's a total scumbag. Yeah. We... And, and it's maddening, maddening to see this very clear pattern of abuse for a very long time. And he keeps getting away with it. Why do you think he keeps getting away with it? Matthew. Because he's a, because he was a doctor at right. the time. Because he had DR in front of his name. Yeah. 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 That's exactly, that's hundred percent why. Crazy. It took six months after the initial complaints made by Sean and Katie for the College of BC Physicians and Surgeons to begin looking into the accusations made against Joseph Cheryl Lambus. Cheryl Lambus was, of course, denying everything, calling the girls liars, but despite his protestations, when the college announced in November 92 that there would be a hearing, Cheryl Lambus panicked. He was certain that there would be a finding against him. Joseph began drinking and drugging more heavily and using sleeping pills to knock himself out at night. He said that the complaints were lies and began talking to Shelley about killing the girls. He claimed Katie was the instigator and spun a tale that she was trying to get back at him because she thought he had talked to her parents about intimate details she'd shared with him. He also spoke to Shelley about possibly killing members of the college panel. At the time, Shelley thought he was just blowing off steam. He'd ranted about hurting and killing people before and nothing had happened. On November 11, 1992, Joseph recorded a phone call he'd made to Katie Simmons asking her why she was telling lies about him. She was adamant that she was being truthful. After the call, he was upset, saying that the girls believed what they were saying and were proceeding with the hearing. Joseph told Shelley that they would not stop unless they were dead. At this point, Sean lived with Katie in their Aunt Jillian's basement suite in Surrey. Six or seven times on Sundays, Cheryl Lambus would pile his wife and kids into the car and drove by the Simmons family home in Langley and by Katie and Sean Simmons' place in Surrey. 
Cheryl Lambus also told Shelley that he was driving by the houses on his way to and from work at lunch hours. He also admitted that sometimes he parked near Katie Simmons' house at night and walked around it. He explained he wanted to see what cars were in the driveways. Joseph said he was contemplating talking with Chris Simmons to get himself out of the hot water he was in, but thought better of it. Katie and Sean, of course, contacted the BC College to let them know that Cheryl Lambus had called them. Hearing that they'd done this was the last straw for Joseph. He was going to silence them once and for all. At this point, he contacted a man he knew for some time, a man known for being on the wrong side of the law, Brian Gerald West, whom he'd met while teaching karate in the 70s. Joseph told West he wanted the girls dealt with, and West knew just the guy for the job, David Schlender. According to court documents, David Schlender was a drug user and owed money to Brian West. West told Schlender that Katie and Sean Simmons had to be killed to prevent them from testifying against a karate instructor friend. West suggested burning the house down with the girls inside, but Schlender balked at that. West threatened Schlender and his family several times to get him to commit the crimes. At one point, Schlender said that West showed him Polaroids of dead people, saying this would happen to Schlender's family if he didn't do what West was asking. Schlender, already on bail for the attempted murder of his drug dealer, agreed to kill the Simmons sisters. West provided Schlender with a handgun, silencer, and bullets. West then narrowed his instructions to include only the blonde girl, 19-year-old Sean, who drove the red Jeep and lived in the basement suite at 9341 Street in Surrey. Shelley later recalled Joseph Sherlambus' actions on the evening of January 27, 1993. At 9 p.m., Joseph received a short phone call and immediately turned on the radio news. The news report stated that a 19-year-old woman had been murdered in a Surrey basement suite. Joseph turned the radio off and went out for 20 or 30 minutes, returning in an agitated state to watch more news. Shelley Sherilambas recognized the house shown on the television news as the home of Katie and Sean Simmons, the one that they'd driven by. Days later, when Shelley and Joseph Cheryl Lambus watch Sean's funeral on television, Joseph commented that Sean got what she deserved for trying to kill him. Joseph told Shelley Cheryl Lambus to clip Sean Simmons' obituary from the newspaper and save it, as it might be useful later. There was a big problem, though. After hearing shots on the day of the murder, neighbors had looked out and saw a man running to a car, hopping in, and speeding off. Worse yet, there were insurance documents belonging to the car that had been seen speeding away inside Sean's suite. David Schlender was arrested and soon confessed to Sean's killing, telling cops of the plot of murder for hire. In Schlender's first two statements to the police on January 28th and 29th, he denied killing Sean Simmons. After the police assured him that his family would be protected and that he would be relocated, Schlender told police in his third, fourth, and fifth statements that he had been sent by West on behalf of a karate instructor to threaten Simmons, but that he had panicked, so he had shot her and beaten her to death. The poor girl. The fear she must have been feeling at that time. Mm -hmm. But also one thing I learned, Mike, (laughs) doing these podcasts with you is never hire an active addict to do your dirty work. Right. He, he left 
the insurance documents of the getaway car at the scene. Right. This is horrible. If you're going to hire somebody to do a job for you, you want to hire somebody who's in the right mind. Yeah. And somebody who is heavily addicted in their active addiction. I can speak from a lot of experience. I was not clear-headed. No. Ever when I was in my addiction. And I'm not talking about just being stoned. I am talking about between... Between being high. Yeah. Like, actually, that's probably even worse. Yeah. Because uh, that's all I can think about. And I don't think about what the ramifications of my behavior are going to be. The flip side of that is probably hard to find somebody with a clear mind who's willing to do this sort of thing. Yeah. Wonder why that is. Yeah. Schlender had received $700 in cash from West before the killing and $1,200 the night after. West had promised him more money but had yet to deliver. When Schlender was arrested on January 28, 1993, he was carrying a large amount of money, which he later claimed was from his wife's pension check. According to court documents, quote, On 27 January 1993, after drinking beer and smoking cocaine with a friend named Brian Can, Schlender drove alone in Can's car to Simmons' house. He then returned home and smoked cocaine with his wife. Finally, Schlender went back to Simmons' house armed with a gun. Once at the house, he scratched the door of her Jeep with a key. Schlender went to the front door of the house and spoke to Sean's aunt, who directed Schlender to the basement. He spoke to Sean Simmons, telling her he had accidentally scratched her Jeep. She went outside with Schlender to examine the Jeep, and then the two returned to the residence. Schlender gave Simmons Can's insurance documents and went to the bathroom. Schlender emerged from the bathroom with a gun. He approached Simmons, who was sitting at the table, and held the gun to the back of her head. Simmons saw the gun and panicked. Schlender shot her and then beat her to death with the gun. End quote. Although shot in the head and arm, Sean died of the brutal bludgeoning administered by Schlender, and she fought the whole time. According to Shelley's later testimony, when Joseph learned that a man had been charged with killing Simmons, he became upset. He thought that the man had confessed and that the police would have to wait until Schlender had been convicted before they came after him. He was kind of right. Joseph told Shelley that he was aware Schlender had killed other people. Joseph said that Schlender had killed one man while he was in his bathroom shaving and killed another, an East Indian man, in an underground parking lot. Joseph indicated that because Schlender had confessed to the police his whole family would have to be, quote, taken care of, otherwise it would lead through West back to him. Joseph then gave Shelley details about the murder that had been relayed through West. He said that Schlender had scratched Sean's car as a ruse and then had gone inside her house and shot her. He knew that Sean had fought back and that Schlender had been covered in scratch marks from Sean's fight with him. Joseph told Shelley Sherilambus that West had been well paid for the contract. The whole affair, he said, had cost him $20,000. Shelley was becoming more fearful of her husband and left. Thinking she might be next on Joseph's murder list, she set up a code with her friends that would indicate whether she was in trouble, just in case Joseph made even more viable threats to her. In the meantime, police were surveilling West and Sherilambus, seeing them together. Cops were sure of their involvement in Sean's murder, however, required more time to gather evidence. 
On March 22, 1993, Joseph renewed his passport, knowing he was under surveillance. He mentioned moving to a Greek island. He speculated about whether Greece and Canada had an extradition treaty. Police got wind of this, and a plan was set into motion. RCMP used another complaint made by one of Joseph's patients the year before to bring him in and hold him. On April 2, 1993, the Vancouver Sun ran an article by Phil Needham with the title, quote, Doctor Accused of Sex with Female Patient 16. It read in part, quote, Dr. Joseph Cheryl Lambus is charged with sexual exploitation, procuring, and sexual assault. The charges were laid following an RCMP investigation of a complaint made by the girl last year. In the criminal code, sexual exploitation means that a person in a position of trust or authority touches for sexual purpose a person between the ages of 14 and 18, or invites touching for a sexual purpose. The procuring charge alleges he obtained or attempted to obtain for consideration the sexual services of a person under 18. The maximum sentence for each offense is five years. End quote. Why, Mike? Yeah. Why are they acting on a complaint just now? Just because he's suspected of murder, it's suddenly it's like, okay, let's look into this and get him for this. Why wouldn't they be going after it in the first place? Well, we see that a lot in cases where they don't have enough evidence to hold somebody. So they will find something that, they know that they might uh, have an easier time convicting them on to ensure that they can hold them. In this case in particular, I'm not sure why it happened. I do think that police might have been already investigating this and just pushed the charges forward. Which makes sense, right? Yeah. Like I would do that to try to get the guy. Yeah. But it just, the flip, I'm just, when you read that, I was like, okay, well, if they had enough to arrest him for it already, why wouldn't they have when the complaint happened? Yeah. Because then he would be off the street and this would Yeah, I don't know what happen. the particulars are in this yeah. in this case, but it is it is a yeah, pattern like, that we yeah, see. Yeah, I'm not saying anybody did anything wrong here, actually. I'm just saying, hey, it just feels weird that like if they had the if they could do it then, could they have done it earlier? Well, they weren't suspecting that he was a murderer at the time. So, oh, so, just, so there's less so, impetus. So just a, just a, He's only creating victims of, of alleged sexual assault <laughs> at this point. Oh, so that's just, those aren't, those aren't important, Mike. No. Yeah. It's, that was sarcasm, everyone. And sarcasm from me as yeah. well. Sometimes we have to point that out. <laughs> there are people who don't get it. The Vancouver Sun article also indicated that the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons was unaware of this complaint and the criminal charges against the doctor until they were contacted by the paper for comment. According to McLean's magazine, quote, There are six charges of sexual assault involving three former patients, and he is co-accused in a case of procurement. He is alleged to have traded drugs for sex with the 16-year-old daughter of a cocaine addict. End quote. Schlender pleaded guilty in May of 1993 to the second-degree murder of Sean Simmons and attempted murder of the Surrey drug dealer. Schlender was held for sentencing. After listening to Brian West talk about the contract killing on wiretaps, he and Joseph Sherlambus were arrested and charged for the murder of Sean Simmons. Both men pleaded not guilty, and the legal wrangling began. Schlender was sentenced in June to life without the possibility of parole for 20 years. The Simmons family spoke to the press afterward. From the Vancouver Sun, quote, 
I'm pleased we got what we asked for, a minimum of 20 years without parole, but it doesn't ease the pain, Katie Simmons said outside the courtroom. It doesn't bring my daughter back, does it? Chris Simmons said. The father advised anyone with a complaint about a doctor to go straight to the police rather than going to the medical college. He said it took too long to investigate his daughter's complaints, one of the several made over the years about the family doctor, end quote. Schlender had written a letter of apology to the family for the pain he'd caused, but Chris Simmons was not willing to accept that. Sean's dad said, quote, The only reason he's apologizing is because he was caught, end quote. It was only after his sentencing that Schlender admitted he'd been sent to kill Sean Simmons and not just scare her, as he'd indicated before. The trial for West and Cheryl Lambus was at first supposed to be a joint trial. After a number of hearings, due to the public's knowledge and interest in the case, the men would not, according to defense counsel, receive a fair trial in New West. The trial was to be moved to Vancouver Island later in 1994. This caused a lot of unneeded grief for the Simmons family, who said that their feelings were under-considered by the legal system. They were. As they could not miss the trial of the men who'd allegedly paid to have Sean murdered, it would be a hardship for them to have to travel to the trial and not be able to go to their own home every night after the proceedings. The trials were then split apart. Cheryl Lambas, who would be tried first, now in New West, chose trial by judge alone. West's trial would go ahead in Duncan. At Cheryl Lambus's trial, David Schlender took the stand and admitted he'd never seen the doctor before the murder. He said that Brian West had organized the killing. Katie Simmons testified that she and Sean had complained to the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons about Joseph in September of 1991 and that Cheryl Lambus had later phoned them, trying to intimidate them into retracting their statements. Shelley Sherilambus' testimony was dramatic. She was now divorcing Joseph. She told the court of how her husband had spoken obsessively about killing the Simmons sisters. She also testified about the connections between Joseph and Brian West. Shelley spent a long time on the stand and Joseph's lawyer accused her of bias and exaggeration. Justice Cumming later wrote, quote, The bias strikes me as a natural reaction to years of abuse admitted by the accused. He denied the extent of the abuse described by his wife, but conceded to actions which any independent observer would conclude were hallmarks of a very dysfunctional marital situation, end quote. Can you help me through this one? I will try. I just cannot fathom living with somebody who says he's going to kill somebody mm -hmm. and me not doing something about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that's my, that's my template in life. Like sure. I, I'd never be in that situation. And I know he had abused her for so long, mm -hmm. but I'm kind of like, why didn't she say something? You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. And, and part of what I think is going on here, it's like a power thing. Yeah. Uh, for sure. He is an older man. Yeah. He probably told her that he was much smarter than her and treated her that way. Right. He clearly convinced her that she needed him. Right. She had, by this time, three children with him. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say what she did was the right thing, mm. but I can understand her motives. For yeah, I, I think so too. It's just, it's so hard. And yeah, I can imagine, I can imagine she, she feels bad as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. She has but, to but feel she, bad. She must have been in a situation where she's so frightened she couldn't do anything. Maybe that's what it is, right? Absolutely. This yeah. guy was a tyrant. Horrible. It's clear that he was a tyrant. Yeah. In his own defense, 
Cheryl Lambus took the stand as well. He said that all the drive-bys of the Simmons home were merely him working up the nerve to talk to Chris Simmons to hopefully get him on his side and help him avert the girl's testimony in front of the college. He said that he'd sent Brian West to talk the girls out of pressing charges, knowing that the biker looked intimidating. He claimed he meant only to scare them. He also claimed his visit to West after Sean's murder was to inquire whether West had been involved. On November 24, 1994, the judge rendered his verdict. Joseph Sherilambas was found guilty, convicted of first-degree murder, and conspiracy in the murder of Sean Simmons. And of course, a month later, he was barred of ever again practicing medicine in B.C. He was subsequently sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Chris Simmons, Sean's dad, called for an inquiry into the lack of action on the part of the B.C. College of Physicians. From McLean's magazine, quote, At the trial's end, Christopher Simmons, Sean's father, criticized the B.C. College for failing to move more quickly on the case. There was an 18-month delay between the time of her complaint and the date set for a hearing. In most instances, said College Registrar Handley, delays have now been reduced to the absolute minimum, about seven months. And in any event, he maintained, time was not the issue in the Cheryl Ambus case. What was responsible was the character of the individuals who perpetrated the crime, he said. This was a unique and horrible circumstance. There was no reason to anticipate what happened, end quote. West was convicted a year later and sentenced to life without parole eligibility for 25 years. Shelley Joel's mother, Jacqueline, broke her silence in 1995 in an article about Shelley's relationship with Cheryl Lambus, titled, I Lost My Daughter to a Psychopath. Shelley was now in witness protection. Her mom told the Vancouver province that she was shocked when Cheryl Lambus had approached her about dating Shelley. According to the article, Jacqueline answered the phone and spoke to Joseph when he'd called their home one day. She said, quote, Why do you keep phoning my daughter? It makes me uncomfortable. He said, I like her. I want to help her. Would it bother you if I dated her? Shelley was only 15, he was 33, and her doctor. I told him it was inappropriate. But then Shelley was hospitalized with a serious asthmatic attack. Cheryl Lambas kept her there for five days, visiting her daily with magazines, chocolate bars, and flowers. When I discovered this, I told Shelley, Doctors don't do this. This will be the last time we'll be seeing Dr. Cheryl Lambus. But over those five days, he infiltrated her mind and convinced her he was God's gift. After that, Jacqueline knew she'd lost her daughter to this savvy predator. And this is the thing. He groomed her into the position that he put her in. Yeah. She, like we said, Shelley was 15 years old when they met. A kid. A kid. And they started having sex soon after that, mm. you know, and they were married very quickly as well. So he had her in a very vulnerable, she wasn't in the place to really no. make good decisions for herself. No. So I think blaming her for what went on at all and, and focusing on her role in it is yeah. probably not the right yeah, and that's, to look that's not what I was doing. I was just, no, I, was trying to I, work, I didn't, I'm not accusing you. I was you trying to work that. my head through. But there are, uh, what I'm. The, the, it's just such a shame. Mm -hmm. um, it's just so messy. It's also just so horrible. <laughs> but there are people, I read articles where people were blaming her. Well, you can't do that really. Yeah. 
you mean you can ask the questions and and think but yeah because you know i i see i can't get to the point where i'm putting myself in a situation where because i'm not a 15 year old girl that's been abused right right where you know the fear i guess the fear must have been so huge mm -hmm. you know yeah in 1997, both West and Cheryl Ambas appealed their convictions. Both appeals failed. Chris Simmons used the rage and sadness he felt from his daughter's death to help others and became very active in the now-defunct Victims Advocacy Group Caveat, which stood for Canadians Against Violence Everywhere Advocating for Its Termination. It existed from 1991 to May 10, 2001. It was based in Burlington, Ontario, but had a chapter here in B.C. In 2006, Cheryl Lambus was in the news again, demanding a new trial. Even though he'd been stripped of his title, he still demanded people call him doctor at Kent Institution, here in BC, where he was then incarcerated. He had been relegated to serving food at some point. Cheryl Lambus' complaint alleged that one of the RCMP officers who was a part of the investigation into Cheryl Lambus' involvement in Sean's murder had since fallen in love with and married Joseph's ex-wife, Shelley. Joseph was claiming that he'd been, quote, falsely accused and wrongfully convicted by manufactured evidence, end quote. Joseph's appeal for a new trial was denied. While incarcerated, Cheryl Lambus has repeatedly refused participating in a program meant for sex offenders, and resented being labeled as one. According to court documents, at one point, Joseph wrote his reasoning, quote, My index offense is for first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. I have no convictions for sexual assault. However, having said that, I acknowledge that there were allegations of sexual misconduct and assault. All charges brought forth were subsequently either dropped or stayed with no further proceedings. There are no convictions in my criminal record or file for sexual assault. Therefore, I do not meet the criteria for the Odyssey high-intensity sex offender program or any other sex offender program. These programs have as one of their admission criteria that there must be convictions for sexual assault, end quote. In 2020, Cheryl Lambus' request for day parole was refused. From the Vancouver Sun in May of 2020, the Correctional Service of Canada had recommended against day parole for the former physician. Quote, The board has determined that there are positive aspects of your case, they said, highlighting programming and volunteer work that Cheryl Ambus was doing in prison. However, the board notes that the attitudes and thinking that were present at the time of the index offense appear to remain present. Your thinking appears somewhat stuck, and your answers to the board's questions reflect resistance to feedback. End quote. Hopefully, he stays right where he is. I hope so, too. Yeah. This, this happened in your hood here. Yeah. We don't want him walking the streets anymore. I have to say he's one of my least favorite people that we've covered. Me too. <laughs> and we've covered some bad ones. Yeah, you know, but just the way he... Just so smarmy and narcissistic and creep. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and kept going back to the well as far as like legal things. I kept finding more things where he was like, no, I don't want to be called a sex offender because my, uh, my, my main offense is murder. It, it doesn't matter that I've done all these other things leading up to that and that the murder was actually to cover up a sexual offense. 
What a creep. Just horrible. Yeah. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 212, Breaking the Oath, The Murder of Sean Simmons. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 827 darkptn We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Okay, here is our first voicemail. Hi, I'm calling from um, St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, I really, really love your podcast. It, um, you know, I listen to it every uh, morning when I am on my way to work. Um, I just wanted to talk about the Mr. Big operations. I'm not sure if you heard of the Newfoundland case, um, Nelson Hart, who um, they tried to convict uh, for him murdering his two little girls who drowned. Um, they ended up, um, you know, dismissing that case with his Mr. Big confessions because it was just all wrong. So if you haven't heard of that case, look into it. It's pretty interesting and really sad because it's just the case of the two girls just really drowned because he couldn't swim himself. Anyways, um, stay safe, love your podcast, and looking forward to future episodes. Bye. Well, thank you for that. And Yes, I am very aware of that case, and it has actually been on my list of cases to do, but because it involves two children, I have trouble. I I mean, where do you cut it off in true crime? Where do you draw the line? Uh, but it, it's really tough for me to do episodes covering children. I think it's an innocence thing. It's a yeah, and I mean, I'm not saying that that any victim deserves to die. No. Any victim, like all victims deserve um, attention and that kind of thing. But personally, I find child victims so disturbing. I have a really hard time. And I look at our list of, I put a, a post in the Umberyard to ask for case recommendations. And 80% of them are listeners saying, here's a case that involves children. And I'm like, I don't want to do them. I really don't want to do cases about kids because they upset me personally so much. This is one thing I didn't think of when, you, you know, when I started almost, you know, in a month or so, it'll be about a year ago. Yeah. It, it didn't occur to me yeah. that uh, the emotional side of covering the stories. Yeah. Because I'm like, okay, I'll do true crime with Mike. But then when you get into it and you you want to do well by the victims and their families, mm -hmm. and, and it, it's actually, some of them can be super emotional to, to write, to look into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is the thing. And I'm starting to wonder about true crime. <laughs> like I am, I'm starting to wonder, is this something that I want to continue doing? Because, mm. and I'm not saying I'm going to start, stop dark poutine, but it might change, mm. you know? Um, it's just hard sometimes doing this. Well, it is. It's traumatic for me. And I'm sure it's traumatic for people, like people hearing, uh, I've had people reach out to me to say that it has been hard to hear about such and such a case because they knew people or were related yeah. to people, Yeah, you know? That's and, why I like, I like doing the really old ones from the 1800s. Right, me too. Because it's, it's become history, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of why I like those too. But yeah. at the same time, like, 
I do want to cover cases that are more modern because I do feel that uh, reminding people, it's like I feel like doing these cases in a way, and I don't want to be egotistical about it, but I, I, I want, to, want it to be a, a eulogy for these people. Yeah. You know, like as much information as we can about somebody who was a victim uh, is in the case uh, that we cover is a great thing. If we don't have that much information about a victim, I tend to steer away from it. Mm. If the person hasn't, if there's no information about the victims and only about the perpetrator, you probably won't hear it here. Yeah. You know, but, but yeah, I, I really struggle. I have been struggling a lot with it lately. Um, how do we, how do we, do this in a way that doesn't affect us both emotionally. More big feet. <laughs> more big, more Bigfoot, more dark history. Uh, there's a few things that I have in mind as far as what we can do in that regard. But yeah, it's, it's tough. But thanks for your call. Yes, thank you. St. Yeah. John's. Have you been to St. John's? No, I have not. I did. Once. I have never been to Newfoundland ever in my life. And apparently being half new fee, <laughs> I That's should probably sin. go. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Anyway, here is our next voicemail. Hey, Mike and Matthew, how's it going? And say hi to Steve. Uh, Sharon calling from Strathroy, Ontario. Uh, just have to say, you guys are doing a fabulous job loving, loving the podcast. And uh, I have a lot more to binge. I started at the beginning, then I went to the newest episode. So now I'm like working my way to the middle. Anyway, I just wanted to ask if you have or thought about covering the murder of Jennifer Jenkins in Chatham, Ontario. She was shot by her brother. And actually there is a documentary, I think it was done by CTV called Life with Murder. And it was actually really interesting and uh, just wondered if you had thought about covering that at some point in one of your podcasts. But uh, other than that, I should get back to work and stop distracting myself with your stuff. And uh, you guys have a great day. And oh yeah, don't forget, go take a shit in your hat. Well, thank you so much. That's Sharon Strathroy. I think that's Sharon BH, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. I won't say her name. From my hometown. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that would be an interesting case to do. It would. And I have... Um, Thanks for calling I, Sharon, by the way. I have Strathroy. seen go that... Go Strathroy. I have seen that documentary, and it's it's quite good. It's on yeah. Amazon Prime, if you want to watch it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting, like... I don't know, like sometimes covering cases that people are so familiar with, I feel like, what do we add to the conversation? What are Matthew and I, as just a couple of clowns, going to add to the conversation that hasn't already been done masterfully in that documentary? But remember, we have global reach, so not a lot of people have heard about it. Sure. <laughs> this is a global empire, Mike. There's no empire. <laughs> I don't want it, want anything to do with anything colonial. Thank you very empire much. Empire doesn't have to be colonial. Well, it kind of <laughs> does. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, thank you so Thanks, much Sharon. from Strathroy, Matthew's hometown. And we have one more voicemail. Let's have a listen. Let's see what's going on here. Hi, you lovely gentlemen. I was just listening to your episode, Murder in Bear River, The Slaying of Annie Kempton. And as you read the inscription on her family grave, uh, talking about the qualities of womanhood as they come to fending off rape, I was, I think, yelling a lot of curse words that worried my dog who was hanging out with me. I really appreciated you guys digging into that and talking about why that kind of mentality is toxic. You guys always do a really great job of focusing on the victims and making sure that their narrative is represented and that the choices that they make while a crime is being committed on them aren't a judgment call as to their worth. Uh, you guys are really wonderful. As a uh, born and bred Okie, if you guys ever want to do an away game of the Oklahoma City bombings, that would be... Um, really interesting for me to hear your perspective on. Uh, but as always, you guys do a wonderful job. Go poop in your toque. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, and those when whenever we see those kind of things in an episode that we're covering, we will always twig on it. Yeah, we like we actually talk about the episode while we have lunch together. And yeah. I walked in last week before we recorded. I was livid about those parts. Yeah. I was abs like like she was. I was livid. Right? And I write those into <laughs> I write those into the episode specifically because I see them as problematic. Yeah, I I don't avoid them so we can go yeah because so head can, on with them. Right? We can have a discussion about it. Yeah, and and talk about you know wow. How, how kind of what the heck that yeah, is. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, um, Oklahoma City bombing is on my list of OA games uh, to do. Painful. Painful, especially because, again, so many victims. We're and, so young. And so many young, like there was a, a, a nursery school, yeah. like a daycare in there. I think I'll call in sick that week. Maybe. <laughs> uh, or, yeah, there's there's got to be a way to cover the stuff that doesn't because they're important stories to tell as well yeah that's it for this week's voicemails again you can leave us one at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN we'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats if you're stumped for what to chat with us about a quick story is welcome all right it is on to Patreon and Donut Money Donors. And first up from Patreon, we have Brooklyn Chappett. And she is from West Kelowna, British Columbia. West Kelowna. West Kelowna. What does Brooklyn do there in West Kelowna, British Columbia? Kelowna is beautiful. I love it up there. I would move to Kelowna in an instant. It, yeah, except for the forest fire or the fires, brush fires, whatever they call them. Well, there's lots of places where you're not even close to yeah. the, yeah. So I would still. I rented a place there. Was mm-hmm. it last summer, summer before? Just Steve and Justin and I for a Oh, weekend. yeah. It's gorgeous. It is beautiful. Yeah. Brooklyn. So, I like that name. I do too. I just think of Brooklyn Heights, the uh, Canadian drag queen when <laughs> I hear Brooklyn. But I think Brooklyn uh, is responsible for feeding the Ogopogo. Well, there you go. Someone's got to do it. And I always wondered what the Ogopogo ate. 
Yeah, and she holds up fish and he does twirls and everything for her. Well, that's neat. Yeah. I would like to see that. Does she charge to for people to watch her do this? No, she, the part of the deal is she can't let anyone see her doing it. Oh, that's sad. Yes, keep the mystery alive. Yeah. Mike. Keep the mystery alive. Next up we have from Moose Jaw, one of the coolest named places, Saskatchewan, uh, Kimber, Kimberly Sikorsky. Hello, Kimberly. Thank Kimberly. you. Thank you. And what does Kimberly Sikorsky do there in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, besides watch her dog run away for three days? Because <laughs> it's so flat. That's an old joke. That it? is a very old joke. And it's a poor one. You need to get a new joke. I need a new joke about Saskatchewan and how flat it is. I think she's the mayor. She's the mayor of Moose Jaw? No, of Saskatchewan. No, that would be the premier. No, but she's the mayor of the entire province. Oh, it's like that lady who claims to be the queen of Canada. Yeah. Oh, that, that kooky so, lady. So she's the mayor the of Saskatchewan. The QAnon lady. Like Steve's the mayor of Yelltown. But Kimberly's not involved in QAnon, is she? Is she one of those? No. No, okay. So. She may have infiltrated them to break them up. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, she's, yeah. she's an infiltrator. Good. Yeah. I think we need more people <laughs> il- infiltrating the cuckoo birds. Yeah, only cool people listen to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the world has become a crazy place. So we're really grateful that people are still thinking of us at stuff such tough times. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Kimberly Sikorsky from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And Brooklyn. And Brooklyn from West Kelowna, British Columbia. Canada. Canada. <laughs> Earth. Earth. Um, yes. Milky Way. Well, we can't forget the solar system. <laughs> you skipped. Um, and we didn't have any donut money donors this week, but that's cool. We know you still love us. Uh, anyway, that's that. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash dark For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg. And not a bad apple, because we don't need any more bad apples. I threw away a bad apple yesterday. Yeah? Yeah. Was it an actual apple that was bad? Yeah, it sat there for too long. Oh. The mangoes got my attention, and the apple just didn't look fancy enough. (laughs) And then I felt bad throwing them out. I love apples. Why didn't you make pie? With one apple. Sure. (laughs) A little mini pie. You made us those pears that time. Do you know what I made you say? I almost brought you one. I will next time. What's that? 19th century Belgian buns. So good. So is that like an old Belgian man? (laughs) No. His buns? They have like lots of goodness in them. I'll bring you one next time. Bring me a Belgian bun. I'll bring you 19th century Belgian bun. You brought me Burger King today. I brought you Burger King. Yeah.
and uh, and a cherry pie, mm-hmm. which was kind of amazing. And some kind of bad poutine. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that good? Not good. The, ch- the curds were squeaky. I'll give them that. The curds are squeaky. It's the, the gravy. The gravy was garbage. The gravy was poor. And it wasn't hot enough. No. like, And the fries were a little bit soggy. So, yeah, they need to up their game. They were limp. Limp biscuit. Limp biscuits. Those fries needed a little <laughs> Viagra, I think. Anyway, that's it, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.